0: Please stand as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from Mark chapter 14, verses 43 through 52. Immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priest, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. A certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him. But he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. This is the word of God for the people of God. God.
1: Thank you, friend, for reading our lesson. And uh, it is so good to see so many of you who are not a part of the Gulf Coast exile this weekend for spring break. You're here, and we welcome you. Uh, as you can see, our youth choir is away, uh, many of them are traveling, and we have 38 uh, who are actually, as Shannon mentioned, in the Bahamas in, on an island called Eleuthera island that is about uh, hundred miles long and two miles wide and they're working there on a habitat project and so we certainly remember them I talked to our youth director Adam Jones uh, this morning early and uh, there were a lot of folks at the airport as you can imagine during spring break week and they are off and flying now have been for about an hour And we remember them especially. Uh, How grateful are we to have the Foothill High School Choir? I mean, they sound more like a college choir. Now, all of these are juniors and seniors or sophomores, juniors, seniors? Do you have any freshmen? How many freshmen are there? That's wonderful. Wonderful. Awesome. Uh, Tustin, California. Uh, we welcome you. They are all the way from Tustin. Uh, they sang, I think, at the Andrew Jackson. Did you all s- General The General. Yes, the General Jackson last night. And they're going to be in Belmede uh, later on tonight. And uh, Chelsea, we thank you so much for being with us. It's an honor to have you uh, with us today. I've noticed that some of you uh, are mindful that it's St. Patrick's Day today. Uh, some of you have your green on. Uh, We won't be able to pinch you if you don't because of safe sanctuary, so you'll excuse us uh, because of that. I've noticed that some of you have seemed to have forgotten that it's uh, Green Day. Some of you are wearing orange for some reason, and I was told today (laughs) that orange is the new green. I think that's right. And so uh, we are hoping for a victory uh, this afternoon down at the Bridgestone. Uh, for those of you who don't know, the SEC tournament's happening, and, and uh, Tennessee and Auburn are playing for the championship today. So uh, we have a few Auburn folks in the crowd, and, um, but we've got a lot of orange today. And we welcome each of you, especially those who are visiting. So if you missed last week, you know that today is the second Sunday In the season we call Lent, Lent short for lengthen, the days are lengthening now, and we're beginning this pilgrimage together following Jesus to Calvary. And so our series is cross-training, and we've read again from the Gospel of Mark. We'll do that next week as well. I want to refresh your memory as of last week. Last week, we talked about Simon of Cyrene, who was an African Jew from North Africa, from Libya on the coast of North Africa, who came to Jerusalem from Libya, 873 miles for the Passover feast. And when he got to the Via Dolorosa, we recalled how he found himself in a mob scene. This man from Libya found himself carrying the cross of a condemned rabbi that was imposed upon him. Because of the flogging and beating, Jesus could not bear the weight of the cross, and so Simon of Cyrene was tapped by a Roman spear and forced to carry the cross. And of course, as we talked about last week, whenever you wear somebody else's shoes, whenever you bear someone else's cross, It not only means something to them, it changes your life as well. And it did, Simon. This morning, I want to switch gears a little bit. We're moving away from a cross that was imposed to a cross that was rejected. We're moving today from a hero, Simon, to a villain. Every good story has both hero and villain. I don't know how it is with you, but I have to tell you that in in all of the passion stories, the most fiendish piece for me is this bit about betrayal. I don't know who said it, but I agree with it. Trust can take years to build, but only a second to break. It's true. It's hard to figure this morning that one of the twelve, one of the inner circle, actually went rogue on Jesus. We remember, especially early in his ministry in Galilee, that Jesus had numerous fans, a lot of spectators, a lot of admirers in Galilee. But then one day, he chose 12 to be the inner circle. He chose 12, a dozen men, to be a part of his lead team. They were hand-picked, they were vetted, They were chosen, they were prayed over, and yet one of these 12, frankly, didn't pan out. His name? Judas, Judas Iscariot. Now, you need to know, if you don't already, that that Iscariot part is not his last name. That's his place of origin, Iscariot. It means, literally, man of carry-off. If you don't know your geography, Kerioth was a little town in southern Judah, just east of the Dead Sea, and Judas was the only disciple who didn't come from northern Israel. I suppose even in that day, northerners and southerners didn't always see eye to eye. But Kerioth is mentioned only once in the Bible, in the time of Joshua, And so this name that needs no introduction, Judas, is actually a synonym today for deception. It's a word we use for treason. When you study all four Gospels, you see that all four narratives have a little different take on why Judas did it. For example, if you follow the fourth Gospel, John says he did it for the money. I don't care what you're talking about, but when that comes up, well, she just did it for the money. He did it for the money. The whole story goes south. Judas was the treasurer of this outfit. He kept the money bag, and John says that he was a thief. He was an embezzler. He was known to dip his hand into the kitty. Luke, on the other hand, says that the devil made him do it. Luke says that Satan entered into Judas and looked for an opportune moment. There are others who say that Judas was actually trying to force Jesus' hand, that Judas actually loved Jesus. He was devoted to Jesus. But Judas's idea of messiahship and kingship was a bit different from the teacher. Judas wanted a coup. He didn't want a cross. Judas wanted a sword. He didn't want any sacrifice. Judas wanted revolution, not reconciliation. Judas wanted to be rid of the Romans. And let's face it, during the festival, during holiday, when you've got that many Jews in a town like Jerusalem, it is an opportune moment for mutiny, and he betrayed Jesus. What really gets me about Judas is not just what he did, but where he did it. He betrayed Jesus in the garden. Some of us were there three weeks ago. It's on the east side of Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives. There's a prayer place called Gethsemane. And Judas betrayed Jesus in the place where they prayed. And note how Judas identified Jesus. He cut a deal with the chief priests and scribes, the religious professionals, and he said, I will lead you to the chapel where we pray, and this will be our sign. The one I kiss is Jesus. Oh, no. I would much prefer the text to say something like this. Now, Judas said, the one I hit with a stick. That's him. The one I kick in the shin, the one I punch in the gut, that will be Jesus. But Judas betrayed Jesus with a kiss. Sometimes the person you'd take a bullet for is actually standing behind the trigger. And Judas, with a kiss, at the chapel in the place where they prayed. It's unthinkable, it's unimaginable. Of course, Judas was not the only one who betrayed Jesus. I don't know if you're aware of it, but betrayal has many expressions. For example, in the text just prior to what we read, in the garden, you remember Jesus takes aside the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And chapter 14, verse 33 says that Jesus was distressed. He was agitated. Mark is emphasizing the humanity of Jesus. And Jesus said to the inner circle, look, I'm going to pray by myself. And he threw himself down to pray, sweating great drops of blood. And he said to the three, stay alert. Keep watch with me. Just stay awake. He's not asking them to do anything. He's just asking them to be with him, to watch and to pray. And three times Jesus returns and finds them asleep lethargic, lackadaisical, oblivious. And I submit to you that inattention is a form of betrayal. Spiritual negligence leads to betrayal. There's another expression of betrayal in this text, When Judas kissed Jesus, notice that one of the twelve, one of the disciples, whipped out his sword, his dagger, and started swinging. Apparently, he wasn't a very good aim. He was going for the neck, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest's servant. Matthew's version says that Jesus was indignant. Hold your fire, he said, for he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. In other words, what he's saying is this, for you to use violence and bloodshed in the name of Jesus is a betrayal of the values of the kingdom. That's an expression of betrayal. There's one other form of betrayal in this text. I'd never noticed this until this past week. And so I added it to the reading, verses 51 and 52, where there's a young disciple, many believe it's actually John Mark who wrote this text, is confronted by this posse who comes to Jesus. And when they grab his robe, his linen robe, what does he do? He takes off running, leaving his robe behind, naked as a jaybird. And by the way, this is the first episode of streaking in the Bible. Did you know it's biblical? It is. The term naked in the Scripture, what does it mean? It means defenseless. It means shameful. You remember another place where there were people who realized they were naked in the Garden of Eden when they disobeyed the Word of God. Disobedience leads to betrayal. And this young disciple just left Jesus in the lurch. It's interesting because this is the last act of discipleship in Mark's account, save Peter's denial. And it's ironic to me, the first act of discipleship is in Mark 1, where the disciples leave everything to follow Jesus. And the last act is in Mark 14, where disciples leave everything to forsake Jesus, even their clothes. And so, in case you feel a little high and mighty about Judas, they all went AWOL on Jesus just as he predicted. In fact, Jesus sees their betrayal in Mark's gospel as a fulfillment of Scripture. Mark quotes Zechariah thirteen seven: you will all become deserters, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And that's exactly what happened. They all bailed on Jesus, one with a kiss, three who were sleeping, one with a sword, violence, and one who just retreated, who ran away without his clothes. You know the name Alexander Solzhenitsyn, don't you? The great Russian novelist who survived the gulag in the Soviet Union, he once said, listen to this, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the human heart of every being. And who is willing to destroy a peace of his own heart. Judas wasn't the only one. There's an old Cherokee proverb, you remember it? An old grandfather, Native American, teaching his grandson about life, and he said this, there's a fight going on inside me. It's a terrible fight, and it's between two wolves. One wolf is evil, he is anger, envy, regret, greed, arrogance, guilt, false pride, and ego, and the other wolf is good. He is joy, he is peace, he's love, he's hope, humility, truth, compassion, and faith. And this same fight, said the grandfather to the boy, is going on inside you and inside every other person. And the little boy thought for a moment and then asked the question, Grandfather, which wolf will win?" And the old man said, The one that you feed. The only difference between Judas and all the others is not in their betrayal, it's in their repentance. Judas couldn't forgive Himself. In lieu of his failure, he was somehow blinded to the possibility of grace. And so what does he do? You know the rest of the story. He took his life. I tell you, the problem with suicide is it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. If only he could have held out till Sunday. I was reading the other day in the National Institute of Mental Health, that in 2017, suicide has become one of the leading causes of death in the United States. It is 10th in the United States. For those aged 10 to 34, it is number two. It is the number two killer, suicide. Researchers have discovered that more than half the people who died by suicide in 2017 did not have a known diagnosed mental health condition at the time of their death. 47,000. Add to that what they now call in the institute death of despair, that is ODing from drugs, and that number is 70,000. And you begin to see that we're living in an age where we're often more afraid of life than we are afraid of death Oh, if he could have only waited until Sunday. But he lost hope, not just in Jesus, but in himself. I don't know if you're like me, but have you ever discovered that sometimes the most difficult person in the world to forgive is myself? The hardest person to show mercy to is me. We have a tendency, don't we, to define ourselves only by our failures, only by our warts and by our flaws instead of by God's grace. And the truth is, every one of us, like the apostles, have failed Jesus, and like Judas, have wound up at some point on the edge of despair. But something happened on the third day, and it changed everything. He came back. Hope came back. These 11 who had barricaded themselves behind grief and despair, the risen Christ breaks the barricade penetrates their guilt and shame. And do you remember his first words to them on that Sunday evening? Shalom. <laughs> Peace be with you. That's why every Sunday... The passing of the peace, the peace of Christ be with you and also with you. It's a resurrection greeting. It means everything is changed. He didn't shame them. He shalomed them. And he showed them his scars. And he breathed on them. I love the word for breath. In the Greek, it's pneuma. It means spirit. Spirit. And Jesus breathes his spirit upon them, and everything changes. Jesus just wouldn't let them go. O love that will not let me go, I rest my weary soul in thee. I give thee back the life I owe, that in thine ocean depths its flow may richer, fuller be. That's the gospel. God does not define us merely by our sin, but by his grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. If we confess our sins, says 1 John, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. A few weeks ago, with this I close, I was, I was having a kind of a low Day. You ever have a low day? I was a little discouraged, a little distressed and agitated, and I got an email that same morning from one of you. The note came attached with a piece written by a pastor from North Carolina whose name is Kevin DeYoung entitled, Apostolic Anxiety. It meant so much to me, I shared it with the staff, I shared it with a group of young pastors in St. Simons, Georgia, at a conference this past Thursday night. And I want to share it with you. Here's what it says, 2 Corinthians 11:28 has always seemed like a strange verse to me until I became a pastor. Here's Paul rattling off all the ways he's been beaten up for Jesus imprisonments, lashes, rods, shipwrecks, drifting at sea, sleepless nights, hunger and thirst, cold and exposure, danger from everyone, everywhere. And then, as the cherry on top, Paul mentions one more trial, and I quote, "'Apart from other things,' he writes, "'there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches.'" This is the Paul who faced every imaginable opposition and and yet learned to be content, in his words, and anxious for nothing. And here he is admitting that even with everything else he's endured, he still feels anxiety for the churches. Ever since I became a pastor, writes Dr. DeYoung, I have found... I have found... Comfort, unusual comfort in this verse. It's not that I've accomplished what Paul accomplished. It's not that I have suffered what he suffered. But every earnest disciple, every earnest minister feels the burden of the church. And Paul had several churches to burden him. The churches were full of infighting and backbiting. They put up with false teaching. They were prone to legalism on one hand and complete chaos on the other. But Paul loved these churches, and their struggles burdened him more than shipwreck, more than imprisonment. "'I'm not surprised,' writes the writer, that Paul felt daily pressure. His work never seemed to let up. He had to respond to multiple and often conflicting criticisms. Some people thought Paul was too harsh. Others said, no, he's too weak. They questioned his credentials. They compared him negatively to other apostles. They didn't like his preaching. On some days, they just didn't like him. All this for the man who led them to Jesus, who loved them like a father, who refused their money and risked his neck for their good. No wonder there was no weight for Paul like the weight of caring for God's people. Ask any pastor who really takes his work seriously, and he will tell you of the pressures he feels in ministry, people in crisis, people leaving, people coming, people disappointed by him, people disappointing to him. And in the midst of this work, the pastor is trying to find time for study, for prayer, for preparation and family, and most pastors feel a burden for all the other things that they should be doing, more outreach, more for the poor, more for missions more to address global concerns, social concerns, and on top of all this, every pastor has his or her own personal hurts, own personal betrayals, and his own spiritual health to attend to, writes Dr. DeYoung, the truth of the matter is we are all weak, but be encouraged. God uses weak things to shame the strong. His grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. So, for the sake of Christ, be content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when you are weak, then you're strong. Paul had pressure. You have pressure But God can handle the pressure, and he looks good even when you can't." End of quote. I'm keeping that letter because what the writer is saying is simply this, if you will bear the cross, it will bear you. Some of you came in this morning, and you're living on Friday. But Sunday's coming, and when Sunday comes, you will discover in no uncertain terms that God's grace is enough for you and that the defining word of your life is not betrayal, it's beloved. And so we lift high the cross the love of Christ proclaim till all the world adore his sacred name. Amen.